This is Out of Office for Thursday, the 25th of April, 2013. MOOCs, e-learning for out-of-office workers. Welcome to the Out of Office podcast, where you'll learn how to work from virtually anywhere by using the internet for greater convenience, comfort, and freedom. Your hosts are Chris Pudney and Gihan Pereira. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Gihan. How are you? Very well, very well. And it's Anzac Day today, where we remember our fallen heroes in the war. We do, and it's a very solemn day both in terms of Anzac Day and the weather as well. It's quite overcast. Yeah, it is. It is. And today we thought we'd talk about e-learning, and uh, we're going to talk about something that you've done recently, Chris. And so why don't you kick off with this whole idea, and then I'll, uh, I'll ask you some questions about what you did. Okay, sure. So we're going to talk about MOOCs. And the reason for doing so is that uh, whereas most people who work in an office are going to be sent on courses or they might receive some kind of on-site training and the employer is taking responsibility for their workers' education, in the case of us out-of-office workers, we're usually responsible to ourselves for our personal and professional education. So the fact that we are out-of-office workers gives us the kind of flexibility that makes it easier in many cases to to do courses, whether they're traditional courses or the MOOCs and e-learning that we're going to talk about today. But traditional courses do have some of the drawbacks that standard office work has in so much as you've got to travel to and from some place of learning, whether it's a campus or a college where you can go to your lectures. You might have to buy textbooks. There are often tuition or um, enrolment fees. And you've got to do pesky things like exams. Mm-hmm. What we're going to talk about today are MOOCs. And if, you don't, if you're not familiar with the term, MOOC is an acronym that stands for Massive Open Online Course. And I reckon MOOCs are to education what out of office work is to uh, what out of office is to work, in so much as MOOCs allow you to both time shift and place shift your learning in the same way that uh, telecommuting and out of office allows you to place shift and time shift your work style. Yes, and, and there's really no reason why in-office workers can't do online learning through MOOCs and there's no reason why out-of-office workers can't go to training courses and of course sometimes they do especially and I think especially if you're a semi-commuter so you're spending some of your time in the office some of your time out of office you might actually be spending you might actually be going to a training course along with your uh, with your colleagues or employees or uh, uh, other employees or if you're a digital nomad like I am uh, I still go along to courses. But as you say, it seems to be that there's a really nice match between if you're an in-office worker, you tend to go to training courses. And if you're an out-of-office worker, you tend to do your online education through things like MOOCs. That's right. That's right. It's a good point that MOOCs apply across the board, but they're a good fit for out-of-office workers. Yeah. yeah. And I think also there's a, there's a, there is a trend now uh, towards this kind of blended learning where you might do some some training in a workshop and then you've got some out of uh, out of workshop training as well so you could do some online training as well so even semi commuters and in office workers might be in, might end up doing some online training at some point yeah. and and I know Chris you've recently done a course and you did it over the last few months and I, I just want to take the take the opportunity to share some of your experiences with that because I think it's really useful to anyone who's thinking of doing any sort of online training whether it's free or paid or getting your manager to to pay for your online training or to give you the time to do that um, I think the experience that you've had with Coursera is is really valuable so we're going to run this podcast a little bit of an interview so I'll ask you the questions Chris and uh, uh, you can share your ideas and experiences let's do it Kehan. All right, so let's start off with, what is a MOOC? 
Okay. I know we introduced the acronym, but tell tell me a bit more about that. Sure. Let's work through that acronym. So MOOC stands for Massive Open Online Course. And the massive refers to the fact that there can be thousands, even tens or hundreds of thousands of students enrolled in the course. In the case of the one that I did, uh, it started with 102,000 enrollees. But by the end of the course, that number was down to 5,500. So there was a huge drop-off rate. And I understand that that's not just particular to the course that I did, that that's a phenomenon familiar to MOOCs uh, across the board. Um, but even so, even, even though there are only 5,500 who completed, that's still a large number. Uh, the open means that anyone is, uh, is, is able to enrol in the course. doesn't matter where you are or who you are. You don't have to be attending uni or anything like that. And it generally means that, that the course is free. It's not going to cost you any money, so free as in beer. And sometimes it can also mean free as in speech in so much as some of the, the courses, you can take the content and you can create your own course and add to it. There's a whole open learning initiative around this idea, so a bit like what Wikipedia is to knowledge and information, MOOCs, some MOOCs can be to, to learning and teaching. The Coursera courses aren't like that. They're free, as in beer, so they cost no money, but that you can't go and take the content and, and use it yourself. Uh, you go, Gihan? go ahead. Yep. Okay. And then I was just going to say that the online and course bits, well, they speak for themselves. Good, good. So, look, uh, you mentioned Coursera, and that's the one that you use. And I know that we'll talk about that because that is the one that you use. But I guess a lot of these things that we're talking about apply to any sort of online education that that people are providing. So, why did you choose Coursera specifically? Well, Gihan, it was more of a spur of the moment decision, and I don't advocate uh, deciding to take a MOOC in the way that I did. Uh, I was. I saw the uh, the data analysis MOOC advertised on one of the blogs, not advertised, but linked to from one of the visualization blogs that I followed. And it was really the fact that it was about data analysis, which is relevant to the work that I do, and also my curiosity about MOOCs. I wanted to learn about them, and so here was a good fit. So I, I enrolled. And if it had been offered by someone other than Coursera, like uh, Udacity or Udacity, I don't know how you pronounce it, or edX, then I probably would have enrolled um, uh, regardless of whether it was Coursera who was offering the course. Um, but a bit about Coursera itself. They've only been around for about a year. They launched last year, 2012, in April. And the way they've set themselves up is as a platform for universities to offer their courses online. So, for example, the course that I did, it was offered by the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins Uni. And I think that's possibly something that helped me decide to uh, enrol in the course, the fact that a high-profile university was offering the material. And they currently have about 60 unis uh, that they've teamed up with, offering hundreds of courses in uh, a broad range of subjects. The arts, sciences, maths, engineering, law, you name it, they've probably got a course, uh, they're probably offering a course in that subject. Uh, And they also have them in various languages as well, predominantly English, but also Chinese, French and Italian. A few of the courses recently have started uh, eligible for course credit. So if you are enrolled at a uni uh, and they're offering some of their courses through Coursera, then you can earn points towards your degree. Those particular courses actually have proper, uh, have online examinations that actually count towards your mark. The course that I did, Gihan, that was free. It didn't cost me any money and it 
it earned me no accreditation or points towards our uni course, but I did get a certificate of completion with a distinction gear, and I reckon that's worth mentioning. <laughs> You're always a high achiever, Chris. <laughs> I think you won the prize in our honours class for the best, did, yeah, best project yes. as well. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and uh, I remember look, halfway through the course, we went out and uh, I think we saw some comedy, and uh, the people we're with, I, I mentioned that I was doing the Coursera course, that it was completely free, it cost me no money, and uh, it was being offered to thousands of people by by Coursera and they said well what's Shane asked us what is uh, Coursera's business model and I had to admit that I actually didn't know and I thought maybe it was just benevolence or something like that but after looking into it it, it appears that at the moment they don't have a business model implemented but they're brainstorming several uh, ideas with their university partners so for instance they may choose to um, to charge enrollment fees or perhaps tuition and tutorial fees or if you want to actually get some accreditation, then a, certific- a certification fee, perhaps some sponsorship. So people who want to, to get people to learn about something might sponsor courses in particular subjects. And finally, they might act as a go-between between students and recruiters uh, and get a kind of recruitment or agency fee for uh, uh, bringing the two together. So people with distinctions in their certificates of completion might get headhunted. And then they're going to share uh, a portion of that revenue with uh, their university partners. But at the moment, they're not generating money. But I think that's the kind of uh, those are the kinds of things that they're going to perhaps implement as a way of becoming sustainable. And to add to that, one of the things that I heard in the last six months, six to eight, twelve months, was some speculation that Google might buy Coursera, so oh. that uh, Google, you know Google wants access to a whole bunch of information, and Coursera would be a great place for them to have access to education. And so, you know, that's, uh, I guess, it's the ultimate business model to have one customer who buys you out. Yes, yep, that's uh, the exit strategy, or as it's sometimes called. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So let's look at your particular course, Chris. And again, I've, I've got really interest in this because I work with people who are creating online courses. How was this particular course structured? Well, it ran for about eight weeks, uh, started in January, finished in March. And it was very much like going to uni, Gihan. It had parallels, online parallels with the kinds of things that that take place when you have a standard university or college course. So there were lectures that you needed to attend in the case of uh, the online course. These lectures were in the form of videos. So it was essentially the lecturer narrating uh, slides that he'd prepared. You could watch those in the web browser or you could download the video and and view them offline if you wanted. And also the content of the slides was available as HTML, as PDFs, if you wanted to download those. Uh, These lectures, uh, the week's lectures were made available at the start of each week and you'd work your way through the material. And due by the end of the week was a quiz. So you had to uh, finish that quiz at the end of the week. These were just uh, a set of multiple choice questions. So they were marked automatically. You were given four attempts uh, at the quiz, um, and your best mark was your final mark. And they also had a hard and a soft deadline. So if you completed uh, the quiz by the hard deadline, you got whatever mark you got. But there was also a soft deadline for those who were struggling to to find the time to do the course, and that incurred a 20% penalty on your mark. There were also a couple of written assignments, which I really enjoyed doing. I found them really valuable. Uh, One was uh, at the midpoint of the course, and the other one was at the end of the course. Uh, We were given two weeks to complete these. Um, And at the end of the two-week period, you submitted your your written assignment, and then we... 
they were graded not by uh, the teaching assistants and the lecturers because, as I said, there were tens, hundreds of thousands of students enrolled, so that was uh, intractable, but uh, they used peer assessment. So four of my fellow students marked my papers and I was required to mark four papers of other students. And you just received the median mark that, uh, that your peers ascribed to you. And we uh, were given one week to do the assessments following the completion of the assignments. And if you didn't uh, do your peer assessments, if you didn't mark for at least four other assignments, then you incurred a penalty on your uh, assignment mark. And then, uh, as with a standard course, you interact with your uh, lecturers and your tutors and your fellow students. And the way that Coursera uh, allows that is through a web forum. This was really useful. So they just have a standard web forum devoted to the course. They divide uh, the topics up um, into things like the week's lectures and the quizzes and the assignments and then a kind of miscellaneous area where people can talk about anything. And then the way that the the questions posted to the forum were addressed was by a voting system. So if there was a question that you wanted to ask but someone had already asked it or you found it interesting, then you could vote it up. And then those top, those forum topics with the, the highest number of votes were the ones that were addressed first by the lecturers and teaching assistants. And, of course, the students themselves could help each other out by, by, answering, the, by answering questions, and, and that's often what happened. Um, as well as the web forums, there was a course wiki where students could uh, create content around the subject matter that we were dealing with. I didn't get much time to actually look at the wiki or contribute to it, but that was another interaction mechanism. And finally, there was a place where you could organise a meetup, so using meetup.com, so that if uh, there were students in your local area who are also doing the course, then you could get together face-to-face -face and discuss uh, course material. Wow, it looks like they're really taking advantage of a, a number of different ways of learning, aren't they? It's not just doing the lectures and the assignments. It's really taking, uh, tapping into the power of the crowd as well. Yeah, exactly. It was that, because that's something that it really lacks compared with a traditional course where you actually go to campus and you're with your fellow classmates, that's really lacking from uh, many online, inter online systems. So they've, they've used online technologies in the cloud like web forums and wikis to, to provide that kind of interaction, which I think was really clever. It also seems like, Chris, just to clarify, you said there were five and a half thousand people who ended up completing just your course. Is that right? So you were doing this eight-week course with five five thousand other people. Yep, that's right. Well, a hundred thousand enrolled at the start, and yeah. a few, and quite a few, eighty percent or more than that, ninety-five percent dropped off uh, at some point during the course. But by the end of the course, five and a half thousand had done all of the quizzes and completed both assignments. It just seems to me that when you've got that, you've got some advantages. Like we, you, you, know, you talked about you don't get all these people going to campus and you don't get that sort of face-to-face -face interaction, but there are other advantages as well, such as you get 5,000 people who are interacting on this web forum. They decide what, uh, what they, they have some say in which, the, which questions are the, the most common or the most popular ones. They can get help from 5,000 other people if they choose to help you. And that's something that you can't get in, a, in an in-person course. Absolutely. I mean, there were some, some people doing the course who were really, real, real boffins when it came to data analysis and statistics, and they were well able to help out students who were struggling with the material, who were new to the whole data analysis area. And I really like the idea of the peer assessment where, uh, again, you've got, you tap into the power of the crowd rather than forcing the, the lecturers and teaching assistants to mark 5,000 papers or more than that, actually, when you started, I guess. Um, 
and I guess like having four, just four people seems a bit of a limitation given that you've got thousands to choose from. But I, of course, there's because you had to mark four as well, and you probably don't want to mark 44 either, do you? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So they've got to choose a number which is small enough that uh, peer assessment is going to be is going to work, but large enough to sort of even out the noise from people who just uh, are either vicious or too lazy to mark you accurately. Yeah, that's right. And I was curious to know whether you know whether there was any sort of selection process in in choosing your the people who marked your essays. Was were people were there people who scored high on the multiple choice quizzes? Do you know, or was it just random people from the course? I believe I believe it was completely random, Gihan. Yep. Mm. So if you were enrolled, still enrolled, and still active at that point, I think it would just pick randomly until you got four marks. Yeah. Okay. Okay, because I guess that there could be a little bit more intelligence built into that because if you do the multiple choice assessments beforehand, they know the sort of people who are scoring high and who are actually willing to do the quizzes. Yeah, yeah, possibly. Yeah, yeah okay, that's interesting. So it sounds like there was quite a bit of work. So how much time was actually required and how, how did you find the time broken down, Chris, in terms of the work that you did? Yeah, I th- the workload that was stated on the introductory in the introductory material said three to five hours per week. But I think... I spent more than that. I don't have um, numbers that I can track to to back that up, but I, re- I felt like it was more to me, more like five to seven per week, especially the weeks where we had assignment work due. Uh, that, uh, that took extra time as well. So the things that you had to do, for instance, were work your way through the lecture material, so uh, just watch watch those lecture videos and absorb the material in it, then complete the weekly quizzes. If it was an assignment week, then you had assignment work to do. If it was an assessment week, then you had assessment to do. Um, and then there are the web forums. So spending time on the web forums, if you had questions, then looking for other people, looking through the forums to see if the question had been answered, and if not, then posting question, posting your own questions, or um, helping others out as well, if you had the time to do that. Yeah, so it does sound like quite a big commitment. And I do remember during the course you were talking about the fact that it did turn out to be a bit more, uh, that the commitment was a bit more than you expected initially. And I think we may have even postponed one of our podcasts because you were you were busy that week with assessments. I think, you, you, yeah, we had, we did. Yeah, and I think, uh, uh, but it's, it's, it also sounds like something that, I think that's a good sign that people who are doing these online courses, they're not just slacking off, that the courses do require you to do a bit of work. And I, I saw some research into e-learning where they said that pretty much that the e-learning is just as effective as in-person learning. Uh, but one of the differences is that people tend to spend more time in e-learning because they might watch a video a couple of times. So you might watch a lecture, and if you miss something, you can pause and go back and watch it again. So it might actually take longer than an hour to watch a lecture, whereas if you're sitting there in a, in a university hall and the lecturer's speaking, you generally don't get the time, to, uh, the opportunity to rewind and, except very occasionally, asks, uh, ask the lecturer to repeat herself or himself. That's absolutely right. That I did, you know, rewatch stuff or download the uh, slides and work my way through them again if there was stuff that I I missed or didn't uh, didn't absorb the first time round. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I, I saw another little uh, statistic about e-learning, which had, which didn't come with a reference, but it was on an infographic that said that e-learning is proven to increase knowledge retention by twenty five to sixty percent. Okay. Sounds so like a made-up statistic. Yeah, it does, it does. <laughs> and uh, th- th- that'll be interesting because I'm sure that this infographic took their stats from a number of different e-learning resources. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so um, 
Was there anything that you didn't expect about the course that came as a pleasant or unpleasant surprise? Sure. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I kind of enrolled on a spur, on a whim. I, I saw this MOOC and I thought, yeah, I want to know about MOOCs and I need to know about data analysis. Let's let's enrol without really thinking about the time and effort that was going to be involved. Um, it did say that you'd need three to five hours a week, and I thought, yeah, that's I can manage that. But once the course got underway, I realised, you know, this is, this is serious stuff. If you want to make it through this course, you're going to have to devote some serious time to, to getting through the eight weeks. So I hadn't given enough thought to um, did I have the time to do the course, um, and that's something I'd advise people and will advise people at the end of this, um, this podcast about. Also, it, this was the first time that uh, Jeffrey Leake, the, the prof from JHU, had given this course, and it was a bit rough around the edges. So there were some issues with typos in the slides and quizzes that he put together. Uh, there were also some problems with the deadlines that he set up for the quizzes and assignments for people in certain time zones. Just He just needed to tweak things and shift things a few hours to accommodate people in, say, on, I think... He, he uh, set a deadline of midnight for the west coast of the east coast of the US and that meant the people on the east coast still had a few hours of time that they could possibly use productively. So he just had to tweak things with deadlines. Also, uh, we were required to use um, a programming language and platform for statistics called R and a lot of people had uh, who hadn't used R before had some technical difficulties because you know it can be used on Windows or Linux or Mac. So there was a lot of support issues around the use of R. Um, but the great thing, that what made these issues from mountains into molehills was the fact that we had the web forum. So as soon as you know you make a typo on one of your slides, there are 100,000 sets of eyeballs who are going to say, well, uh, line three on slide five should actually read so-and-so. And so these problems were picked up really early in the piece. And um, to, to Prof Leek's credit, he, he, he dealt with them on the fly and fixed things um, as we went along. So... Uh, I was a bit surprised by, you know, some of the issues. I thought, you know, this is Johns Hopkins. This is going to be a well-polished piece of uh, of um, content. But uh, there were a few uh, road humps, and uh, they were fixed along the way. Yeah, well, that that is good to hear that there. And as you, as you said, that the lecturers and teaching assistants were available live actually during the duration of the course. It wasn't completely on. It wasn't completely uh, online recorded, um, automated, was it? That's correct. It was, you know, the course was actually being, the content was being constructed as we went along, in fact. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. But presumably the next time they run it, they'll have all the content ready, they'll have all, organized all the glitches or, or uh, removed all the glitches, but they'll still have to have the lecturers and teach, lecturer <laughs> and teaching assistants there, which is good. That, that is good. So we've kind of road tested this course for Prof Leek and Johns Hopkins. So uh, my check's in the mail, presumably. <laughs> so what do you think was the reason that... They had such a huge dropout rate. So as you said, from 100,000 to 5,000. Was that because you think that some people just enrolled for it just because they thought, here's a free course, let me just try it out and see what it's like? Or do you think that there were a lot of genuine students who really wanted the credit or the learning from it, but just couldn't commit the time? I think both, Kihan. I think the barriers to entry are nil. The cost, it costs mm. you nothing. Anyone can enroll. Um, and... Until you start doing the course, you don't realise the workload involved. So, you know, like I struggled with the time commitment and I could have given up many times and just thought, oh, well, stuff it, you know, it, the, the, nothing ventured. Uh, it hasn't cost me anything. I can give up at any point. So I reckon a lot of people gave up just because they realised that uh, this was too much for them uh, in terms of time. And I think a lot of people also just 
didn't have the background, the, the prerequisite background in uh, having basic understanding of using R and being, you know, having some mathemat- basic mathematical competence and just didn't, had, had jumped in to a course that they were, wasn't appropriate for them. Right. Okay. So as we get towards the end of our podcast, are there any recommendations that you'd have, Chris, for, for workers and employers as well as a result of your experience with Coursera and with this course? Yeah, well, I think because we're out-of-office workers, we are, as, as we said in the intro, we're, we're responsible for our own education. And MOOCs, I think, are a really good resource for sharpening the saw, as they say, uh, because the benefits of MOOCs parallel a lot of the benefits of, and flexibility of the out-of-office work style. So things like you don't have to travel to and from uh, lecture theatres in order to attend classes. Uh, you don't, and you get some new skills. So these benefits accrue not just to you, but you get, but also to the people that you're working for. So uh, your employer gets the, gets these benefits as well. They don't lose vast tracts of your time because you're off uh, enrolled in a six month course at uni. Uh, they they only lose a portion of that time. We're actually gaining the skills that you need to do the work. It's also good for people who've got managers who might have teams that are globally distributed. They can sort of suggest to their team that they all go off and do, uh, say, a data analysis course. And even though that they might be uh, in different time zones in different parts of the world, they can virtually be doing the same course together. So, you know, they can interact in a way that they couldn't if they were being sent, if they were being taught in office or being taught at uh, a local campus. There are also a few questions that uh, you possibly need to ask yourself before you enrol in any course. These probably apply to any learning as well as MOOCs, such as what are the benefits that you're going to get from completing the course. So in in my case, I was learning a lot more about data data analysis and getting more proficient with the R programming language. Also, the question that I didn't ask myself uh, properly, but you should ask, is do you have the time that's necessary to learn the course material? So you've got to do, you know, you've got to get through the lectures, you've got to do the required reading, you've got assignments and tests and quizzes to complete. And that's going to involve uh, several hours a week uh, for several weeks or several months even. I think one of the things that out-of-office workers tend to do, and the research does support this, is that out-of-office workers do tend to be more productive. And uh, I think in some cases, they'll be willing to put in the extra hours, even if they miscalculated their time commitment. I think sometimes they'll they'll do whatever it takes to make up the time, because they tend to have that mindset of let's work on the outcomes, not just on the on the hours worked. You're exactly right, Kihan. It was because I'm an out-of-office worker that I was able to say, once I realized the time commitment involved, I was able to say, all right, so, you know, I can move around my work hours. I can put in an hour on this each morning before I start work and and start a bit later. I can do a little bit at lunchtime, have a longer lunch break, um, and I can do a little bit of uh, work after after I finish a little bit of coursework after I finish my work time so because I've got that flexibility in my work style I was able, I was more easily able to to do the MOOC uh, than say a person who was doing a standard nine-to-five job in an office yeah great um, the fact that the course was structured the way it was in the fact that there was a series of deadlines, a deadline each week for doing a quiz and a couple of assignments with deadlines, that really helped me, I think, stick out the course. If it had been a, a course that was, you know, do this at your own pace, all the material is here, just work your way through it, I think I would have probably just said, oh, this is too hard. Look, I'll, I'll do this next week and next week would have become two weeks and two weeks would have become a month. And I possibly wouldn't have gotten through the the course if it hadn't have had a series of um, hard deadlines. If it had been a do it at your own pace, I think um, my motivation would have waned. And I think 
you can ask yourself that before you uh, enroll in a course, whether it has that structure to it or is it a do it at your own pace. And, and some people might be better suited to one form or the other. And finally, as I mentioned, uh, the quality of MOOCs appears to be highly variable. So they're a relatively new phenomenon, and I think there's been a rush to get content into MOOCs without much regard for the actual content itself. So a friend of ours, he did uh, uh, another Coursera course on a particular programming language. It's a, a new and sexy programming language, and the course material was provided by the inventor of that language. But he found it pretty poorly delivered. Just because this guy invented a language doesn't mean he knows how to teach about the language. And so he gave up after you know only a couple of uh, a couple of lectures. He quickly realised that it was going to fly. So if, if the course has been given before, then I think it pays to see what feedback people have given about the course in the past, what uh, reviews it's received. If it's a new course, then that's more difficult. But spend some time, if you can, finding out about the quality of the material uh, before you decide to enroll in a MOOC. Okay, great. And you know, this is really topical and there's a lot of discussion at the moment, a lot of dis debate about the value of in-person training or traditional courses versus online training or this specific example with MOOCs. What do you, what do you reckon, Chris? Are, are there specific reasons or circumstances when you should choose a MOOC versus doing a traditional course or go, attending in-person training? Yeah, I think one of the advantages of MOOCs is that like out-of-office work, you get great flexibility in time-shifting and place-shifting how you, how you complete the course. So that's a, a bonus. But you'll need to be highly motivated uh, because it's really up to you to, to work your way through the material. And that's, if, you know, if you're putting in time to go to a lecture and attend tutorials with a traditional course, then you've got those people around you who are going to motivate you. Whereas with a MOOC, you're working largely in isolation other than interacting online. And so I think you need that extra degree of self-motivation in order to, to put yourself through a MOOC. Because as we saw with the the course that I did and with many other MOOCs, there's a huge drop-off rate. Only, you know, 5% of people actually complete the course. So you need that, that self-motivation, I think, to help you get you to, through to the end. Fantastic. So thank you, Chris, for sharing your experience. And I know that you've also shared your experience during the process on your own blog. So uh, we'll provide a link to that in the notes for this podcast. But do you want to just tell people how they can find your blog and then find what you've written about the, your experience there? No worries. So my blog is vislives, that's V-I-S-L-I-V-E-S dot -E com. And then if you go to uh, the right-hand side, once you hit the homepage, there'll be a list of topics and just click on the Coursera link and you'll end up with all of my postings about the data analysis course. Yes, and we'll also provide a link to the Coursera website itself and the course that Chris did on Coursera.org. Uh, and we should also talk about our own website, which is outofofficebook.com, and you can still get the Out of Office book from there. You can go there and you'll get the uh, notes from this podcast, from previous podcasts, uh, our blog, and, and as I said, you can get the book from there as well. Great, Gihan. Thanks for talking to us uh, uh, this month, and we'll be talking about something else in a month's time. Yeah, and thank you so much, Chris, for sharing your experience as well. It's been really valuable for me, and I'm sure for all our listeners as well, especially those who are, as you said, responsible for their own professional education. Thanks, Thanks Chris. Thanks, Bye for now. Visit our website at outofofficebook.com where you can read all our show notes, subscribe to the podcast, and get our book out of office. We wish you all the best in creating the work style of your choice.